you've joined us part way through our Easter series, which uh, we've called this year, we've called it Life Hacks. And um, really helpfully, actually, somebody's written a whole website of Life Hacks. So you can go to lifehacks.org, which was obviously prepared specifically for this sermon series. And um, I thought, I'll go on to lifehacks.org and have a look. What's a life hack from the richest man in the world? Jeff Bezos. Here's Jeff Bezos, life hack. A rule he introduced is the two pizza team. No team should be so big that you couldn't feed it with two pizzas. I think that's a great idea, isn't it? So all of you people who look after teams, you're all thinking, um, how big's the pizza? That, that's probably an important question, isn't it? Um, but I chose that person for a really special reason, uh, because I think in lots of ways he's representative uh, of our journey today. Uh, and it's this, where do we place our ultimate hope? What is our life's love? I think it's a great question for us to ask, isn't it? Our life's love is generally where we place our ultimate hope. They are connected. We, we don't think about that very often. But the thing that we love the most, and think about it for a minute, what is the thing that you absolutely could not live without? It would feel as though the whole of your future, there is no, there is no sense of hope or security or confidence if this was taken away. It might be that you're here today and you're scrambling around thinking, that is precisely my issue. I don't have one. I don't have a hope. I don't have something that I hold on to. I think actually Jeff Bezos is really representative of a whole load of people who in all sorts of different ways, maybe not to the point of 153 billion net worth, who can have a divorce settlement of 35 billion with his wife Mackenzie. But financial security is a thing which I think in our culture, actually in most cultures, is something which we desperately look for, desperately seek as our security. Why are we looking at that this afternoon? Well, you know, it's really dawned on me during the preparation for, for this celebratory Easter Sunday uh, message. It's really dawned on me, maybe for the first time with real power, is that the Easter, Easter story is about the death of two people. We, we, we generally and understandably, we focus. Easter is about the death of Jesus. But actually, Easter is about the death of two people. And those two people shine a light onto the whole of our human experience. One of those people is Jesus, obviously. The other one is Judas. For both of them, <clears throat> excuse me, for both of them, it seemed as though uh, that Friday was the great leveler. They both finally became equal. Death is a great leveler, isn't it? 
It doesn't actually matter whether you have an overdraft or whether you have 153 billion in the bank. It really doesn't matter. Death is that great leveler, it seems. And I chose that example of somebody who has been incredibly successful financially. I'm, I'm not necessarily making any comment on the idea that he's placed all his security in wealth, not at all. But I think I've, I've chosen that because it points at Judas. And I think for many of us, Judas is a massive problem in the Easter story. Why? Well, it goes something like this. For the Easter story to work out the way it does, there are certain things which are essential. And what's essential ultimately in the Easter story is that Jesus is not supported. He doesn't have anybody alongside Him. There is no encouragement from His disciples. In fact, all of His disciples disappear. He dies alone. But further, central to the Easter story, is He is betrayed by Judas. The Easter story functions through that series of events. And so for many, I guess, and and it's been, I suppose, a challenge for some of my Christian journey as well, Judas is a problem because it seems as though he was the one who, if you like, he... He got the poison chalice really, didn't he? He was the one of the disciples who had to end up being the one to betray. And it feels so incredibly unfair that Judas should be in that situation, that he should be the one to ultimately betray Jesus so that he might be handed over to the authorities, the Jewish authorities first, and then the Roman authorities, so that that combined picture of both Jews and Gentiles are together implicated and responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. But I want us to just pause and just take some time looking at Judas. Because I think in looking at Judas, we shine a bright light onto the death of Jesus. Is Judas really the committed disciple? That's a question to ask, isn't it? Is Judas really the committed disciple? The answer is no. It's not something which is explicitly stated through the whole of the story of Jesus. But as we see the life of Jesus and His disciples unfold, we get little moments which just point at the reality. There's a moment where Jesus is reclining with His uh, disciples and others, Pharisees watching, and a woman comes in and she anoints Jesus' feet with incredibly valuable perfume. It's a beautiful moment in the sense that this woman is expressing to Jesus, 
a love which is beyond financial worth. That's the, that's the purpose behind that moment. John recounts it in this way. John chapter 12, verse 4 and 4 to 6. One of the disciples, on watching that woman pouring out this perfume onto Jesus' feet, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. <laughs> Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? That sounds perfectly reasonable, doesn't it? What absolute excess. What waste. Here we have Jesus, a peasant preacher, who is reclining at a table, and a woman comes in to him of, with something of extreme value, and Jesus is known to be a provider for the poor, and he allows her to waste that valuable resource on Jesus could have sold it it was worth a year's wages that that is some Chanel isn't it it was worth a year's wages I'm guessing that that was a year's wages of the peasant group or the woman who brought it to Jesus But John goes on to give us a little window into a reality. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Way back, way back in the journey of Jesus, there is a distinct and clear insight into the reality of Judas in the company of Jesus' disciples. He was a thief and he helped himself to the money. There are two things which I find absolutely breathtaking when I see that Jesus, Judas was never really a true disciple throughout. The first shock is this. And this is something which at times has terrified me. And it's this. Hating God can actually look at times like loving God. There can be the times when it is a reality of appearing to love God and the reality is way different. There is a hate of God deep down, masquerading as something kind and benevolent and good. Isn't that, isn't that shocking? It's shocking because there are times when I think, do you know what, Paul? The reality deep down inside is you, you, don't, really, you don't really love this God that you claim to love. You're a fraud and it troubles me. And it hurts me. Do you, have, do you ever have that? Do you ever have that as a believer in Jesus when you look at yourself and you think, oh, you're a fraud. There's no reality in you. 
I've got to be encouraged by what people down through the centuries have said back to that, and it's this. If you are troubled by that, then you are in a good place. Actually, if your heart is moved with the fact that you are not who you ought to be, then you are in a good place. Be very, very fearful if you are untroubled. If it never concerns you, if you never have that sense of, I am not who I ought to be. Judas' shock, his hate of God, looked like loving God. But you know, that turns on its head the argument that we started with, which went something like this. If God, who knows everything, chose Judas to be the betrayer, then that's just unfair on Judas. It turns it completely upside down. It says this, if God, the omnipotent one, the one who, omniscient one, the one who knows everything, knew that Judas was going to be, betray him, why did he put him in charge of the treasury? Why did he do it? Isn't that the question that John asks us to confront? Why did Jesus put Judas in front of that absolute temptation when he knew that he was always going to steal from that money? And it's because of this. Because Judas points to yours and my heart. Judas is there to say, we can appear to be that. We can walk the walk, we can talk the talk, and our hearts can be a million miles away. And Jesus was never concerned really about the money. What a terrible thing. So we get to this final week. And Judas, I think, it worked something like this. Judas, who John has told us, has been taking continually from the money of the disciples that was to give to the poor. He has been lining his pockets. Jesus has been a great investment for Judas. This is money in the bag, in a literal sense. And then we get to this final week. I imagine Judas's heart would have sung as Jesus went into Jerusalem. And he was acclaimed by everybody as the great future ruler. This, this is just... I invested in Jesus way back three years ago. I looked at this investment and I thought, this is one to back. Because it looks to me as though this could make me some real cash. And then I get to Jerusalem, and the whole of Jerusalem is just exulting over this Jesus. And I'm one of the twelve looking after the money. I am going to rake it in. Judas, I would imagine, in that fine, those final few days, was absolutely excited. And then there was a crash. Like the 1930s stock market crash. 
as far as Judas was concerned. The stock of Jesus plummets. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, He said to His disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. So this is in this week after He's arrived at Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill Him. But not during the festival, they said. Or there may be a riot among the people. Judas has gone from, uh, Jesus has gone from the best investment to the worst. What do you do at that point? What do you do? You cash out. That's what you do. And so Judas cashes out. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That moment in the Easter story is not a surprise. It is the final cashing out of Judas from the money cow that has been Jesus. Because he has never, never loved him. He has only loved what Jesus gave him. I think that is such a powerful moment in the Easter story for us to come to terms with, for us to realize what is our love of Jesus? What is our life love? It's because of what He can give us. <laughs> Jesus kind of spoke about that when he spoke about the parable of two sons. You see, I think Judas represents a whole load of us. Why did he do that? Because that was his security. That was his love. That was his life love. And it was as temporary a life love as a relationship, as a property, as people around us, all of those things are temporary. Our life loves are fragile at best. And Jesus is there as a great kind of portrayal of where are you in terms of your life love? Because Judas has said, the thing that is going to make me secure is if I know I have got money around me. Now, let me be really clear here. I think the Bible makes it really clear that we should be wise with our money. It does not mean that for everybody it's fritter away and live with nothing. It doesn't mean that. In fact, Paul goes on and he writes to Timothy something which I, th I think he could well have had Judas in mind when he said it. Listen to what he says to Timothy in chapter 6 of uh, the first book of Timothy. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think, oh, wow. I, I wonder whether Paul actually had Judas in mind when he said that. Pierced themselves with many griefs. Because how does it turn out for Jesus in our, for Judas in our reading? Verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The ultimate security that Judas sought became the ultimate source of grief. The remorse that he was filled with meant that he was left with nothing, nothing, and no hope. It is a tragic, terrible, terrible, awful story. But it is also this, I think, this constant picture that ultimate self-centeredness is ultimately destructive. When we wind in and in and in and in on ourselves, where we become the center, where there is no one outside of me, and then I realize that it is falling around me. The consuming guilt and emptiness and hopelessness results in Judas taking his life. I think it is one of those moments in the Bible which is so terribly, terribly sad. Judas has been for much of the Christian church the pilloried one. And yet I think it is desperately sad to have walked so closely to Jesus, to have seen the kindness, the self-sacrifice of Jesus, to have seen the wonderful things that He had done, and yet all of the time His mind has been consumed with what can I get out of this. And it blinded Him from the beauty that He stood alongside. How utterly tragic to be so close and yet so far away. By contrast, because we said this is the death of two people, the Easter story. Our reading culminates the death of Jesus. Because the contrast in Jesus is in a life of ultimate self-sacrifice becomes a life of ultimate hope. 
we find the, le- the women who go down to the tomb in Matthew ch- chapter 28 and verse 5. The angel said to the women, when they saw that Jesus was no longer in the tomb, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. That, that sentence, that declaration by that angel is at the very center of the Christian message. Everything falls apart if this did not happen. That, that's, that, that is the reality. The Christian faith is a complete waste of time if Jesus is not the risen God. Everything rests on this. That's something which the church has understood and come to terms with over the past 2,000 years. And yet, it seems to me paradoxically at times over those 2,000 years with the kind of the confrontational ridiculousness in human terms of the resurrection of Jesus that we have as a church at times lost sight of the significance of the resurrection and we've tried to clown it, kind of uh, cover it up with some philosophical meaning or some beauty or some majestic story or whatever it might be. And whenever we do that, we lose the power of the message of Jesus. We lose it. Because Jesus just becomes another man who has died. And his death might have been powerful and his death might have been significant but this event is the one moment which says that those two deaths were not the great levelers between Judas and Jesus they were not the great levelers because one died in grief and loss and one died in grief and hope And the resurrection of Jesus is the reality where we say this was God present with us. He rose. The most dramatic event in the history of the world. And we compare a life which was given to self-serving, which ends in grief, and we compare a life which is given to self-giving, which results in hope. You know, the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. Culturally, that is mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. In fact, if you were to write in first century Rome, Roman times, if you were to write an account which you wanted to persuade people of the resurrection of Jesus, something which you know actually didn't happen, the last thing you would do is choose women to be the witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Look at what, that, what it says. Verse 8. 
Uh, verse 9, sorry. Suddenly Jesus was with them. <laughs> Greetings. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Greetings. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Why would you not do that? Why would you not create a story like this? Because this in a court of law in the ancient world would have been thrown out immediately because the witnesses were women. Isn't that amazing? I find that powerful on two levels. One, because it subverts the way that very often people talk about the message of the Bible, that it's, it's kind of oppressive to women and all the rest of it. I think the reality is the Bible turns over our expectations again and again and again. It turns it over and it says, I will use the kind of witness that the world would not accept, but a witness that I will accept. And the reality is that the living Jesus becomes the hope of the Christian message. Why? Why is it the hope? I think it, well, I know it works like this. <laughs> it works like this. Because actually I am a lot more like Judas. I am way more like Judas. I can't fix myself out of this condition any more than you can fix yourself out of your condition. I can't work myself to be good enough. You can't work yourself to be good enough. But the resurrection of Jesus says this, I've not come to fix you. I've come to save you. I've come to save you. Salvation. It's a great biblical word, isn't it? Being saved. Right at the beginning we said you, you might be putting your life's love into things which you are holding on to or you might be scraping around looking desperately for where to place your love. You might feel empty and desperate. You might feel frustrated and dissatisfied. You might feel as if life is not giving you what you hoped it would give. And all of that is symptomatic of a Judas life, which is looking for satisfaction that we can gain. And Jesus says, let me break into this world. And let me show you a life outside of you. Let me show you a life which when you place your life in this life, in the middle of all of that difficulty, in the middle of all of that challenge, you can find the most satisfying of lives. That is the message of the Gospel. It actually came to the point where those disciples who had met with Jesus, fascinating outcome for those disciples in that upper room. One of them betrayed Jesus and was dead within hours. One of them lived to a very old age. 
and all of the rest of them died an early death, as far as we can see, because they found hope in the risen Jesus. Today is the most joyful of days because it proclaims that Jesus lives. But you know, the reality is it can only be joyful if it reaches deep down inside. I look at Judas and he held on to something which was never going to satisfy him. I, I, kind, of, I kind of look at it and I thought, maybe if you'd just given it two more days and you'd seen the risen Jesus, would, you, would your heart have been turned around? I don't know the answer to those questions, but I know that there are so many people who are on that journey like Judas, so close and yet so far away. And I want to say to all of us today, look at the risen Jesus, because there is our hope.